You ask yourself, who's teaching this morning? And they say, oh, it's that Jesse guy. He hasn't been here since December. So good morning. (laughs) Yeah, like Mike said, we're just going to rely on the words of Scripture today, right? We're just going to rely on the words of Scripture. And I have to admit that coming in here, I'm just a little bit off. I spent this uh, last week at a camp. Uh, Lincoln Center's been supporting a camp for a number of years, so I spent the week as a counselor, which means that I got to hang out in a cabin with uh, a handful of junior high guys. So it, it was a great week. Um, we, uh, we served the Eldora community. It's, in the, it's at the Pine Lake Camp, not too far from here. So we spent the week serving the Eldora community, doing a number of different things. But then in our free time, we would do things like play tackle football in the pool. And uh, so I still have claw marks and uh, just like these vicious things were done to my body by these being mauled by eighth grade boys. It was just a great... Great week, but a great week to see uh, uh, some youth just really give their life to Christ in a new way, and and so I had a lot of fun there. So we are in, I think it's the eighth week, I didn't check this, I should have before we came up here, but uh, I think it's around the eighth week of this ten-week series called Jesus Said, where we're just looking at the words of Jesus, not only in the Gospels, but we'll spend some time in Revelation as well this morning. Jesus' words aren't just in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're in Acts, and they're in the book of Revelation as well, so... uh, Um, So we're looking at the words of Jesus, and today the words that we're looking at are the words, follow me, follow me. Jesus tells his disciples to follow me. And so if you just join me in prayer, and uh, I want to pray for this, if you would. Jesus, we just want to take time this morning to see who you are, to see who we are following. We want to take time this morning to learn how it is that we go about following you. Because you call us to follow you. And it sounds so simple, and yet it can be so profound as well. So God, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in some ways, the disciples, uh, the original disciples of of Jesus, the, the 12 that he called to him, they had it easier than us because uh, when Jesus said, follow me, they could, they could do that. So Jesus would walk to the next town and they just like went to the next town. And so Jesus would go about healing people and they would be like, okay, we'll just follow Jesus there. So this whole following thing, it seems like it was just kind of easy for, for these disciples to do. Jesus says, follow me, and they just did it, back and forth. And, and if you read in the book of Mark, they were kind of all over, back and forth across the lake, and they were just always following Jesus from here to there. They were doing that. But you've got to wonder, was it really that easy? And what does he really mean when he says, follow me? And what does that mean for us today when he says, follow me? When you think about the words, follow me, I think about it in a couple different ways. You can, you can look at it in a couple different ways. So you can look at the word follow, which is kind of the how. Like, how do you follow is, is kind of what you would ask. Uh, I had somebody the other day just say, well, I want you to teach me to become Christ-like and how to follow Jesus. And so there's this follow, like how to follow. And then you think about the me aspect of it. Who is me? Well, it's Jesus. We've been learning about Jesus since we were in Sunday school. Some of us, some of us, this may be new information. But there's the me part of it too, that you have to know who Jesus is in order to follow him. So we break it down in a couple different ways. And, uh, and we're going to look at both of these ways. I'm going to start out with the me, and then we're going to wrap up with the how this morning. 
There's a point in the 8th uh, chapter of Mark, we're going to spend most of our time this morning in Mark chapter 8, so if you brought a Bible, I just invite you to open it up and, and get there now. The words will be on the screen though as well. But there's a point in the 8th chapter of Mark when the disciples are forced to answer these very questions. Jesus asks them directly uh, along the lines of these questions, and it's actually this really intense conversation between Jesus and his disciples And Jesus not only answers the who and the how in this conversation, but he just demonstrates how important it is for us to grasp this. When you think about the book of Mark, you can divide it in just about two halves. And you can see on your screen why I didn't become a graphic design major. And, uh, and so this is, this is my, uh, my, my drawing of the book of Mark. The book of Mark is, is pretty much divided into about two halves. So you've got this whole mountain climbing experience up there in that snow-capped peak. There's a lot of things going on there. That's the whole transition of the gospel. A couple things you can know about it is like when you're climbing the mountain, on the first half of the, of the, uh, of the book, you, you read about the exciting, amazing uh, ministry of Jesus. The word immediately, just to show you, the word immediately is, is repeated 12 times in the first chapter alone. And it's repeated over 30 times by the time we get to the midpoint of the gospel. Things are happening immediately. Jesus goes from one place to the next place immediately. People are responding to Jesus immediately. And immediately things are happening. So we've got people coming to Jesus by the thousands. Literally by the thousands because he feeds the 5,000. So people are coming to Jesus by the thousands And then he calls 12 specific disciples to follow him and come along with him and and learn from him. Interesting also, the first half of the book of Mark uh, covers three years of Jesus' life. Now, the book of Mark doesn't cover Jesus' whole life. It picks up when he begins his ministry, and we understand his ministry to be about three years. And And so the first half, as we're climbing that mountain, it covers about three years of his life. And in about the equal portions, the second half covers one week. And so when you think about the book of Mark, there's this major transition that happens right at the peak of the gospel, right at the midpoint. And that's what we're going to look at today, is what happened there that changed the entire mood of the gospel? What happened that changed us from this fast-paced going, 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 this amazing ministry to where things slow down. And we're asked to really think about why, why is that? Why does the Holy Spirit encourage Mark to write in that way? Why do we need to slow down so much and just really look at the second half of the book of Mark? So we're going to pick up in Mark eight twenty-seven, And this is the midpoint. What, what begins the midpoint, and why I say we're on, on, the, on the beginning side of, of that mountain peak is because there's a few things that happen, but I think the one phrase that starts it off is when Jesus says this to his disciples, who do you think that I am? So we're going to pick up Mark chapter 8, verse 27. If you want to grab your own Bibles, otherwise you can look on up ahead, and I'm going to be reading. If you just want to sit with your eyes closed, that would be awesome as well. And it goes like this. Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, 
You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Notice first that Jesus asks his disciples what other people are saying. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes it's easy for us, if you've ever been in a barber shop or, or getting your hair done and the people around you, it's easier to talk about what other people are saying. Isn't it? You say, well, I heard so-and-so said this, I heard so-and-so said that. And it gives us time to think about what it is that we're really thinking about on the inside. And it seems that Jesus is almost doing that. He's almost giving them the opportunity to sort of think about what other people are saying and then to sort of take it in and think, what am I thinking about these things? And then he hits them with the question, the really important question. Who do you say that I am? Peter, Peter's got the right answer. Peter says, you are the Messiah. Ding, ding, ding. Do we get like bells and whistles? Jesus does the happy dance and they're dancing around and high fives and it's really great. And No. We don't get any of that. The Messiah literally means the anointed one. There were prophecies from the Old Testament that an anointed king would come and set the people of God free. Now, these disciples and the Jewish people at that time were under oppression from the Roman government. And they felt it. They couldn't establish the type of worship that they wanted. They couldn't establish the type of governance that they wanted. And they felt this oppression. And so there was this Old Testament prophecy that a Messiah, an anointed one from God, would come in and set the people free from this oppression. And they were expecting this to be the Messiah. He's the one who's going to set us free free from this Roman oppression. And what does Jesus do? How does he respond to this declaration by Peter? He, re- he warns him. And he not only warns Peter, but he warns all of the disciples not to tell anyone. The Greek word for warn here is is actually the same word for rebuke. It's just translated as warn for some reason. But rebuke has the whole idea of a warning. It also has the idea of correction and redirection. And it's going to appear two more times in the next few verses. So we want to pay attention to it. Words that are repeated, we want to pay attention to it. So Jesus is not just warning them. He's actually correcting them as if to say it would be wrong to tell people this. Doesn't that seem a bit odd? So we'll keep reading and see where Jesus goes with this. Verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke very plainly about all this. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. There it is, second time. But when Jesus turned, he looked at all the disciples and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. A couple observations. First of all, Jesus changes his title from Messiah to Son of Man. Did you catch that? This shift actually gives more clarity for how we understand who Jesus is as Jesus reveals more about himself. A Messiah is a person anointed by God for a specific task, one who is set apart by God. The Son of Man comes from a very specific prophecy in the Old Testament of Daniel. The Son of Man would come into a world, he would establish a kingdom, and he would reign over all kingdoms, including the Roman government, and his reign would never end. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is 
the Son of Man. And then Jesus begins to expand on his role. He goes on to say the Son of Man is going to be rejected by the very people who believe the prophecy and that he would be killed and rise again. Now the funny part about how Mark describes this whole scene is that he says Jesus is speaking very plainly about these things. You know, sometimes Jesus speaks in parables. He speaks in in stories to kind of get the point across. But right here, Jesus is just telling it like it is. He's got nothing to hide. He's just telling it like it is. But Peter, Peter doesn't like what he's hearing. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He corrects him. He tells him that he's wrong. And as Peter opens his mouth, he is exposed for what he really believes about Jesus in his heart and in his head. He had the right answer, but he just wasn't ready to listen to the Messiah and take in his full message, probably because he had a wrong picture in his heart and in his head. And that wrong picture got in the way of trusting Jesus and following Jesus. It got in the way so bad that he thought he needed to correct Jesus. Have you tried to have a dog on a leash that tries to take you where it thinks you're going? It's chaos. Like my dog, every time he wants to go outside and I, he's in my way and I'm trying to get around. I mean, this is the same thing. Peter's just standing in the way of Jesus trying to tell him where he's going to go. It's like a dance. What happens in this moment is, is actually that... Well, here's this. Have you ever walked down the stairs and you get, to, uh, you get to the stairs and you get to what you think is the last stair? And, uh, and maybe you do this like at night when you can't see the stairs or, or maybe you're carrying something and you can't see what's in front of you and you get to what you think is the last stair and so you think you're going to take a step forward. And right when you go to take a step forward, you quickly realize there's no step there. And like you've already committed to that path, you're already going forward and you're headed towards falling flat on your face. I don't know about you, but there's that moment when it just feels to me like somebody's just pulled the whole world out from underneath me. I don't know what's happening. I thought it was there. What was in my head, what was in my heart was that there was, there was floor there and it wasn't there and I fall flat on my face. This is what's happening to the disciples right here. What they had in their heart and in their head wasn't matching up with the Jesus that was standing right before them and they were about ready to fall flat on their face. So Jesus turns to all his disciples. He's looking at them all. Notice that. Mark says he's looking at all of his disciples. And he rebukes Peter, corrects him, warns him. And he says this, Get behind me, Satan. I have to understand. This warning, this correction, this rebuke is so strong. We hear a lot about how Jesus had run-ins with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the priests, with the elders, with the teachers of the law. But in the book of Mark, nowhere does Jesus rebuke these people as harshly as he rebukes his own disciples right here. The only other people he rebukes as harshly as this are demons. This is a harsh rebuke. It's a reality check for his disciples. But remember, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? So you might wonder, why is Jesus so harsh? Isn't Jesus a nice guy? I mean, I saw the picture on the wall. He's always smiling. Isn't he just supposed to love people? But he does love his disciples. And that's exactly why he rebukes them and steers them in the right direction. 
He doesn't want to see them faceplant. He wants them to live full lives. And he knows in order to do this, he needs them to see exactly who he is. I do the dishes at our house. Rachel does the laundry. This is our agreement. And uh, and we don't have a dishwasher, so I, I pull up to the sink and... And so I'm washing the dishes, and what I always do is, is I take the dishes and put them in the drying rack over here, you know, and, and then there are some, because I usually wait for a couple of days, and I always have a lot of dishes, so I have to lay out a towel and, like, collect them all over on the side of the counter. And, uh, and uh, sharp knives. So I don't put sharp knives in that little, like, stand-up thing, because if you turn them upside down, they get dull. If you turn them right side up, then you stab yourself. And so, uh, and so I put them on a towel, like, next to me on the, on the counter. So the other day, I'm doing some dishes, and, you know, I'm washing dishes and setting things over there. We had been cutting vegetables um, out of the garden, so I had just a lot of knives over here. And in walks Raya, our two-year-old daughter. And, uh, and she, I didn't see her coming in. She came around behind me. She walks over, and she's walking around, and, and she reaches for that towel. She can reach the countertop now, I realize. And she starts pulling it towards her. Now, what do I do? I know that my voice is going to reach her faster than what my hands can. And so I rebuke her. I say, Raya, no, no. I do that because I love her. I don't want her to get hurt. And then I hug her, I pick her up. And as I'm picking her up, I'm thinking of a new way to wash dishes. She's too tall now. Jesus corrects his disciples because he loves them and he wants for them to fully know him. And he wants them to trust him and he wants them to follow him and not some image that they have in their head of a false Jesus. Now to the disciples' credit, at this point in Jesus' ministry, they haven't seen the full picture of Jesus yet. And the cool thing about Jesus is that he does go on to reveal himself completely to us. You know, we can just pick up the Bible and read the rest of the story. He wants to be known. He wants for us to know who he really is. So then we ask the question, so who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is the me? To talk about this, we're going to turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to look at one picture of Jesus. It comes from the first chapter of Revelation, if you want to turn there. It starts in verse 12. We're going to look at one picture of Jesus. Um, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Uh, we have every reason to believe he was probably among the disciples that day who were getting rebuked by Jesus. This is taking place years later. Revelation is, is written years later after Jesus did. Um, he was killed and, and went to the grave and he rose again. And uh, years later, he appears to John in a vision. And this is John describing the vision. Now, one thing you should know about John is that John is perhaps the closest disciple to Jesus when he was walking on earth. The Bible says that, that John was the beloved disciple and when Jesus had, was at the, the final meal with his disciples, John actually laid his head on Jesus' bosom. He was so close to Jesus. And so we're going to pick up in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to read from there. It says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. There's that title again. 
someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. A couple weeks ago, Alice was here and talked about how sometimes the Bible is written in a form of code. It's a form of code that that the readers would have understood, but that we don't understand um, in the same way. We have codes today. I don't know if you've ever texted with somebody who knows how to text, but there's like this code in... in I'm getting texts now from the junior high guys that I was with, and I don't even know what they say, and uh, because they're all three letters long and... Or else if I say that I'm going to Google something, many of you would know what I'm going to do. And, and, and that came far, it's probably in the dictionary now, but far before it was in the dictionary, you just understood. If you're going to Google something, you're going to look it up on the internet. We speak in code as well. And there's code right here, but we can crack the code. We can crack the code. So let's look at this and see what this picture of Jesus is like. Numbers in John's world had meaning. And so the number seven refers to completeness. Lampstands refer to the church. So you get this whole image. The seven lampstands is the complete church. And Jesus is standing among the complete church. Now the complete church included all the churches in that day, but it includes our churches today. And so Jesus is here among us. Some of you might be saying, I I just want to experience the presence of God. I want to experience the presence of Jesus. John is saying, you can Jesus is with you. His presence is with you. If you want to experience the presence of God, follow Jesus. The robe and the sash, they signify one who is a king who has ultimate authority. The robe also signifies a priest, one who has a special connection with God. So we've got this picture of Jesus who has ultimate authority, who has a special connection with God. Some of you are looking for a way to have a connection with God. You say, I want to talk to God I want to hear from God. I want to connect with God. But how do I do that? Follow Jesus. White as a color can sometimes stand for purity, but more important in the book of Revelation, it stands for victory. Jesus' hair is as white as snow, as white as you could describe without Clorox bleach. And Jesus, what this means is that he is victorious. Some of you might battle addictions, fears, and anxiety, and you're looking for victory over these. And you might wonder, where do I even begin to look for victory over these things? Follow Jesus. Fire refines things by burning away what's on the surface to see the structure below. And Jesus' eyes are on fire. And what this shows us is that Jesus has refined vision. He has wisdom. He has insight. Perfect insight. Some of you right now are looking at a tough decision. You're wanting to know how to go forward. You're looking for some advice, some clarity, or maybe you just want some assurance that you're making the right choice. 
follow Jesus. Jesus' feet are like bronze. That means that Jesus is pure, refined in the fire. You might be thinking that you're not worthy of love, that you are not refined, and that nobody could love you as you are, but here is Jesus, refined and pure. He's coming to you. He's standing among you. He's saying, I am here with you. I am pure, and I can make you pure too. I love you, and I want to do that. Follow Jesus. His voice is like the rushing waters, and out of his mouth is a sword, but not just any sword, a double-edged sword, which is the sword of justice. You might be fearing the world around you. Maybe you watch the news at night and you see all kinds of junk going on. You worry about the future of the world for, for your children or your grandchildren. You worry about atrocities taking place like human trafficking, violence, religious persecution, substance abuse, gangs, bullying, and you feel helpless. What do I do when I feel helpless? Jesus is the God of justice. And he says, follow me. And how does John, the closest person to Jesus who has ever lived, how does John respond when he sees Jesus? He falls down as though he were dead. I've seen some pretty spectacular things in my life. I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I saw the Hoover Dam from the Colorado River. I don't even think you can get down there anymore. We looked up and saw the Hoover Dam at night. Beautiful things. I saw the Iowa Hawkeyes win a BCS Bowl a few years ago. <laughs> never thought I would witness that. But never have I fallen down on my knees as though I was dead. And how does Jesus respond to John this time? To the disciple that he once rebuked so harshly, how does he respond now? He puts his hand on his shoulder. He says, do not be afraid. I was here before all of this, and I will be standing in the end when it all passes away, and it will pass away. He says, I hold the keys to death, and when he's saying this, he says, I have authority over your fate. Trust me. Follow me. So this is the me. This is the Jesus that we follow. When people talk about the kingdom of God, this is the king. When people talk about their faith, this is the Jesus that we have faith in. This is the Jesus that we trust. When we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, this is the person who's on the other end of that relationship. This is the guy we're in a relationship with. And it's so important that we have the right picture of him in our heads and in our hearts because our actions are going to follow out of the pictures that we have in our heads and in our hearts. But so now we turn back to the question of how to follow Jesus. And for that, we're going to go back to the book of Mark. So we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. We're going to go back to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus had just corrected all of his, his uh, disciples. He's rebuked them. And it, and it goes on like this. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Follow me. 
If we want to follow Jesus, we have to start by denying ourselves and taking up our cross. We lay down our selfish ambitions, our selfish hopes and dreams and our busy schedules. And this so flies in the face of our over-commercialized American culture. Our culture encourages us to have everything that we want, to rise to the top, to win at all costs, to be the best. And it tells us to do this because we deserve it. Jesus says, lay down your life and follow me. One of my summer reading books is by a man named Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian and he says this, We demonize and bestialize, not because we do not know better, but because we refuse to know what is manifest and choose to know what serves our own interests. Talk about writing in code. So what he's really saying here, he says we're so focused on our own interests that we begin to know only these interests. We choose to know and pursue only our own interests. And in doing so, we lose touch with reality. We actually begin to dehumanize other people, to treat them as though they are not humans, as we pursue our interests at their expense. I went to Vinton Shellsburg High School. I was proud to be a Viking. The Benton Community Bobcats, any Bobcats in this room? The Benton Community Bobcats were our rivals. I remember the first Bobcat that I ever met when I went to college. And to my surprise, he was a person. He could smile. He had a personality. He could be a friend. I remember the feeling that I had when I had realized that he was a person too, even though he was a Bobcat. You see, I'd become so interested in what the happenings were at my high school that I began to just alienate and think about other people at other high schools as not people at all. Now, maybe you're not in high school anymore, but maybe you find yourself doing this with your waiter or your waitress when you go out to eat. Maybe you find yourself doing this with your banker or a clerk at the store. Maybe the person in the car next to you when you're driving. Maybe you become so protective over the interests of yourself and those who are close to you around you that you begin to treat people as though they are not real and as though they are there just to serve your interests. Wolf says that the harder we hold on to our own ideas, the more blind we become to how we treat other people. We hold on to our own things in our world, our own little world, that we think it's okay to impose ourselves on other people and expect things from them. And when we do this, we actually begin to hurt them. We get in a hurry and we justify cutting them off. We get busy and we justify treating them poorly. How do we follow Jesus? We lay down our lives. Here's a few questions just to consider as you consider how you might lay down your life. Do I spend my life trying to hold on to my own ways or trying to hold on to other people? Do I spend my life serving myself or do I spend it by giving it away? Do I acquire possessions for myself or am I, pos- or am I giving my possessions away? Do I upgrade my own life or am I working to upgrade someone else's? Do I get myself ahead or am I working to get somebody else ahead in life? Do I keep my life for myself or am I giving it away? Let's pray.
Jesus, you are justice. You hold our fate in your hands. You are love. You are victorious. You are wise. You are pure. And you are present. And you want to just reach out to us in love. And you want for us, in that love, to follow you. Help us, Jesus, to see you for who you are and to follow you. Amen.